Job and I have spent some time together. One very long summer three years ago, I worked as a chaplain intern at Wolfson Children's Hospital. I worked the pediatric ICU, the neonatal ICU, and the inpatient mental health unit for children. And every day I encountered at least one Job. They were the parent who appeared to be doing everything right. The mom who was working several jobs to care for her child. The dad who read to their child every night before bed. The parents who fed and clothed and loved their child with every fiber of their being. And yet, for no reason at all, tragedy had struck. Parents of sick or dying children can put themselves through a lot of what-ifs. What if he had used his inhaler 30 seconds earlier? What if I had been there to administer the backup EpiPen? Or, in the case of chronic illness, the what-ifs are compounded. Was it something I ate while I was pregnant? Did I do something that caused this? Is God punishing me? But the truth of the matter and part of the wisdom Job reveals to us is that sometimes awful things just happen. There's no reason for it. There was nothing that could have been done. Sometimes we are just dealt a crummy hand. In the book of Job, we are presented with a blameless and upright man, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And yet... Terrible things start happening to him. As Father Donovan pointed out three weeks ago at the beginning of our month of Job, the book begins with God and the accuser, also known as Satan, placing bets on whether Job will still be faithful even when he loses all of the blessings God has heaped upon this righteous man. So God tests Job. The same day, two separate raiding parties steal Job's donkeys, oxen, and camels, And kill all of his servants. A fireball from heaven burns up the sheep and the servants watching them. And a mighty wind collapses a house on top of all of his sons and daughters. And yet at this, Job's response is still to turn to God and worship him. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We should get the hint pretty quick that Job is not a historical book. Job is wisdom literature. Job is a man outside of time and space. We can't place him in a time period, and much like Oz, no one has ever heard of the land of Uz. In fact, the first line should give us a hint that this may be a tall tale. There was once a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That sounds a little bit like Once Upon a Time, which should tip us off that perhaps this isn't a story to be taken as factual. At the very least, it's probably an exaggerated story, as Job's reaction to losing everything in the same day shows. Did God and Satan really make a deal to test Job? Probably not. Who would have recorded their conversation? But when you think of Job as a three-act play, the wisdom of the book of Job can be revealed. The first act sets up the conflict. The second act has the actor struggling against the conflict. And the third act provides resolution. Suddenly, the struggle of Job 
can be seen more as folks trying to make sense of the tragedy in their own lives in a time when other wisdom literature is telling them that God will bless them with material wealth if they just remain faithful, rather than the literal torturing of a man named Job. But even looking at Job as a play, where is the comfort? In chapter 1, Job loses everything. In chapter 2, Satan covers him with boils. And possibly worse, Job's overly helpful friends show up. The friends start off well. They empathize with Job, cry with him, and sit in silence with him for seven days, giving us the Jewish tradition of mourning, Shiva. But when his friends finally open their mouths, nothing good comes out of them. For 30 chapters, we see Job's friends trying to come up with reasons for his misfortune. Most of the arguments center around how Job must not be as righteous as he thinks. Let's be honest. Many people confronted with true grief try to say things to make themselves feel better rather than to help the grieving party. And Job's friends are no exception. If they can convince themselves Job is in the wrong, then they can avoid his same fate. But Job defends himself time and time again. And yet, God does not appear to set the men straight. Instead, a young man who is present and is tired of listening to the old men circle each other decides to speak on God's behalf. Elihu points out that God is not just another mortal, that God speaks only to men in dreams and through prophets to save their souls from hell, and that God is just, good, and worthy of praise due to the sheer reason of being creator of all. Once Elihu stops speaking, God appears to say just that. Out of a whirlwind, God speaks to the men. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? For two chapters, God speaks to Job, not about Job's struggles, but about God's power. And at first, God comes off as a bit of a jerk. Where is the comfort in God's words? Why isn't God answering Job's questions about, Lord, why me? The end of Job that we read today, the final act, is supposed to provide resolution. Job's friends are rebuked by God for saying untrue things about him. And Job is restored twofold, including his sons and daughters. But the ending of Job is unsatisfying. Job lost his children. These are not replaced by different children. Job's body is likely scarred by boils. Tragedy leaves its mark on us well after life has become good, or at least tolerable, again. Where is the comfort in Job? Job is not a book for happy, shiny people. Job is a book for those sitting upon their ash heap. Because only then can one realize what a comfort it is for God to tell us how big he is, 
and how small we are. To have a God that is in control of all and created everything to have its place and time in the universe. Only then is it a comfort to hear God say as he does in Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So why do bad things happen to people who are trying to do their best? I don't know. But that doesn't mean that we should stop asking the question. Unlike in Job's time, God does not just speak to us through dreams and prophets. Job struggles with talking directly to God because he does not know where to find him. But we are in a different position today. Because of Jesus, we have been sent the Holy Spirit. And as Paul tells us in Romans, the Holy Spirit helps us to pray with sighs too deep for words. A God big enough to have created all, a God powerful enough to be truly just, a God loving enough to be all goodness is also big enough for us to question. God is big enough for us to be angry with, to rail against, and to lay our soul bare before. We see the psalmist bringing some pretty unpleasant thoughts before God. And you know what? God is big enough to handle that. In fact, he already knows our thoughts. But the worst thing we can do is to shut down the conversation. God loves you. And he wants to be in relationship with you. While we may not understand why tragedy occurs in this life, we will gain understanding in the next after we are raised up and in our physical body see God who is not a stranger, but a friend. While we are mortals, our knowledge, our wisdom is limited. But we find comfort in an all-powerful and all-good God that is with us every step of this life. We find comfort in the wisdom that God is God. And we find comfort in knowing that God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to redeem the world.